3: This is the Starship sofa. Everybody. welcome, hello and welcome to Shore 205. I am your host. Tony C. Smith Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Fit as a fiddle. <laughs> Yeah, fighting strong, you see, man, for it. what was that, man? It was just a little, a little doze of it, man. I could straight through it, no problem. All that ranting and raving about Melanie puff me pillars and... Would you think I would actually stoop that low to get me pillars puffed and tell you, gee, I'm a real man. I just fight through it. Fighting fit now. <laughs> No It took us a few days, oh did it not. Big lad was floored for a while. But anyway, I didn't miss the show, that was the great thing as well, so I was quite chuffed with that. Because I did feel like shit, to be quite honest, and there was a possibility, but it kept on going. You know what I mean? Just fought the man flu, so and thank you everyone for the, all the emails get well soon. That was lovely, thank you so much. Give you a heads up what's coming in the day. show. We have J.J. Campanella with his Science News for September. We have short fiction by Will Ludwigsson, Speed of Dreams. Then we have a little interview with Tobias Backell about a little project, The Apocalypse Ocean, which is started on Kickstarter programs. So you'll find out all about that. Main fiction comes from Neil Asher. The story is entitled The Gunard and it's narrated by our very own Mike Boris. Wow, how cool is that? This month as well, it is the end of the month. So we've got cover art and it is by Dan Tozier. I'll give you a little heads up about Dan. Dan was born in Toronto And he attended the animation classical at Sheridan College and Computer Animation. Currently working in game development. Dan's taking advantage of the opportunity to keep his drawing skills sharp. His credits in Cartoon, Little Bear and Salmon Max. And Games, Eternal Darkness, Metal Gear Solid. Go on, Dan. How cool is that? The Twin Snakes, Two Human and the up-and-coming X-Men Destiny. Dan! Dan! Round of applause. Have a look at this week's art, this month's art. It's fantastic. Dan, that's just amazing. Thank you so much. Maybe try, you know, if you want to keep your skills sharp, we'll try and sneak another one off you. Thank you so much. So before we delve in deep, I've been trying to kind of get all Twitter, Facebook and Google Plus and everything tied into one so hopefully if you haven't you know signed up to one of them or not signed up to one of them you know following me on one of them go ahead and do that and then you can keep up with the dates i've also and i never realized actually, you know i get these emails and never came to, to take much notice and what everyone was saying at the end so you haven't got an email address at the website so now if you go on i've Josh has stuck up the email address. So if you want to email us, when I say it's starships over at gmail.com, you kind of forget about it. It's there on the site as well. So we will jump into our science news this week, or this month, September. JJ Campanella, Jim. Greetings and felicitations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this September 2011
4: science news update. I'm your host for this evening of Sciencey science, Jim Campanella. Let's get this show on the road. First, my apology to all the Dutch speakers out there. I was corrected on my pronunciation by one of our kind listeners from the Netherlands, Bart van Beoyen. Bart actually gave me a pronunciation guide for his name, which I hope I got right, but I doubt I did. Bart told me that the Dutch potatoes I was talking about in the August 2011 Science News, are not pronounced Binchy. They are pronounced bincha A as in again. Apparently, they were bred by a schoolmaster and part-time farmer in the Dutch province, Friesland, which I also probably just pronounced incorrectly. He named them after one of his former female pupils, ahem, one Binchia Jansma. Bart tells me these potatoes are bland-tasting, fast-growing, and need lots of fertilizer and pesticides. Also, apparently they are so bland that most Dutch stores do not even sell them anymore. I guess they either must not grow them at all anymore in the Netherlands, or they export them. Bart did not tell me which of those things it was. Okay, now that that's out of the way, on to the first story of the night. I usually end with ant stories. Okay, I can hear the groans out there already, but tonight I'm going to begin with an ant story. Yay! Have you ever wondered why ants seem to be so good at taking up residence in various places once their ant hills are squashed or uprooted? If you have wondered about this, you're not the only one. Doctors Natalie Stromate and Nigel Franks from the University of Bristol have published an article this month in the Journal of Experimental Biology that looks exactly at that. Stromate collected ant nests from their coastal homes in the southern UK and relocated them to her lab providing each community with a comfortable artificial nest in a well-supplied and spacious arena, stromate placed an alternative nest site some distance from the ants' home and recorded the insects' movements as they familiarized themselves with their surroundings. Then a week later, she carefully destroyed their home after placing a second unfamiliar nest site on the opposite side of the arena, and then she recorded the entire emigration as the ants worked frantically to relocate. The question that she wanted answered was which nest site would the ants occupy? Would they follow scouts that had learned about the attractive alternative site during early exploration? Or would they search randomly, relying only on their powers of self organization in the hope of stumbling across a desirable site? After months of painstaking analysis by the researchers, they concluded that the ants eventually followed the informed scouts to the familiar alternative nest that had been in the enclosure all along. Initially, some of the insects went scampering off in all directions, but a few of the ants, which had discovered the location of the alternative site while scouting, ran straight to it. Having decided that the familiar site would make a good new home, they returned quickly to the devastated nest to recruit more colleagues, repeating the process and enlisting more followers until enough of the community had assembled to the new site, and the decision made to relocate the entire population. The researchers also tested whether the informed ants relied on pheromone trails to direct them swiftly to their new home or navigated using visual memory of their surroundings. And they found that the ants were guided by their visual memories. According to Stromate, any member of the colony in most ant species can usually follow pheromone trails, while memories are only accessible to their owner. This led her to conclude that instead of following publicly available trails, relocating nestmates are being actively led by guides with access to privileged knowledge about the new nest site. After telling my wife about this ant story, she despaired a bit that there were not human equivalents to the ant scouts who could find you a new house. Not to be too disparaging, but let's say that the ant scouts do a better job of finding a new home for the ants than our realtor has. Onward. There are two new genomes that have been sequenced— One of them may be of interest to Harold and Kumar, if you recognize the movie reference. Researchers at Medicinal Genomics, a company headquartered in Marblehead, Massachusetts, announced a couple of weeks ago that they had compiled the complete DNA sequence for the two major species of cannabis, Cannabis sativa and Cannabis indica. The project is still half-baked, however, so to speak, They have all the pieces of DNA sequence, but the genetic information has not yet been fully assembled into the 10 chromosome pairs that are predicted for the species, nor has the data been analyzed to find genes and other important elements. The genetic data may lead to improvements in marijuana's medicinal properties, said company founder Kevin McKiernan with a mysterious smile on his face. The other genome sequence is from the Tamar wallaby, a type of small kangaroo. An international team led by researchers at the Australian Research Council's Center of Excellence in Kangaroo Genomics unveiled the genetic blueprints of a female wallaby from Kangaroo Island in the Journal of Genome Biology in the August 19th edition. Analysis of the genetic blueprints revealed that a gene called HOXD13 may be responsible for the wallaby's characteristic hop. The gene, which is involved in hind limb development, is turned off and on at different times in wallabies than it is in humans and mice, leading to longer back legs. Okay, on to another topic. My wife rarely gets sick, but I seem to catch everything that my children bring home from school. This has often irked me, and in the back of my mind I've wondered if it is purely genetics that control whether you're likely to catch something like a cold or not. Well, it appears that the flu virus does cause different types of immune responses in different people based on the genetics of those people. In the last issue of the journal, PLOS Genetics, Dr. Alfred Hero, how's that for a cool name, and his team from the University of Michigan found that genetics play a profound role in getting sick. The researchers infected 17 volunteers with a strain of seasonal flu called H3N2, Wisconsin. Nine of the volunteers who got treated with this flu virus got sick. Some of the others reported feeling under the weather, but had no clinically discernible symptoms. The researchers drew blood before the flu inoculation and every eight hours for five days after the initial infection. The team then examined the activity of about 22,000 genes in each blood sample. Hero said, quote, the persistent patterns that came out of this were striking, to say the least, unquote. Gene activity patterns could predict up to 36 hours before symptoms peaked how sick people would get, the researchers found. Those who got sick activated immune chemicals that trigger inflammation and stress responses. In asymptomatic people who didn't look like they had the flu, the immune response was just as active but dramatically different in nature. People who stayed well not only repressed the stress responses, but they also activated anti-inflammation and antioxidant genes. The study illustrates that gene activity analysis may help doctors determine which patients are most in danger of getting seriously ill. But the current study hasn't put the entire story together yet, says Hero. Researchers still need to determine whether the different patterns of responses depend upon the person's genetic makeup, properties of the virus, or other factors. Hero added that the people in the study may react differently to other flu strains or even to the same one under different circumstances. The technology used in the study may one day help doctors diagnose which viruses are infecting babies with fevers and predict which infants will end up in the intensive care unit and which ones can go home. The people who stayed well tended to spread fewer flu viruses than people who got sick, the study also showed. So healthcare workers might be able to test people exposed to a virus and determine from gene activity patterns who needs to be quarantined to limit the spread of an infectious disease. Next up is a bit of an update from some earlier stories about our ancient cousins, and it's also related to the immune system. You may remember that at one point or another we have mentioned that there is genetic evidence that Homo sapiens apparently interbred thousands of years ago with both Neanderthals and the recently discovered and mysterious Denisovans. We have never come back to mention what the consequences of those interspecies relationships may have been to the human genome. As it turns out, we probably owe a lot to both of those species for improving the human immune system. Dr. Laurent abi Rashad and his team from the Stanford University School of Medicine published an article in the journal Science at the end of August that suggests that sleeping around in the short term may be bad for you because it can expose you to diseases, but at least in the course of human evolution, it might actually help to fight off diseases. New research suggests that thousands of years ago, humans acquired important immune system genes via, well, liaisons with some of our extinct hominid cousins, that is, the Neanderthals and the Denisovans. These romantic dalliances may have allowed modern humans to persist in regions where unfamiliar pathogens may have otherwise killed them. Modern Eurasian genomes contain up to 4% of Neanderthal DNA, and DNA of Melanesians of Papua New Guinea is 4-6% to 6% of those mystifying Denisovans. The researchers decided to home in on three particular immune system genes called HLA genes. These genes help the body recognize foreign and potentially dangerous invaders. In fact, these same genes that are used in HLA matches in donors and recipients are crucial for transplants of organs and other tissues, because if they don't match up, then organ rejection will inevitably occur. Using the genetic blueprints of three Neanderthals, the one Denisovan that's been found, and present-day genetic information from bone marrow stem cell donor registries, The researchers compared the frequencies of various versions of the HLA genes. Computer simulations were used to assess whether the observed frequencies were unusual. The results of the study support that humans were definitely producing offspring with Neanderthals and Denisovans. In some instances, those offspring acquired archaic versions of the genes that imparted such a benefit that they eventually became widespread. One Denisovan version of an HLA gene, for example, seems to be present in 50 to 60% of people in China and Papua New Guinea. The authors say the results are exciting but urge caution in interpreting the new data. Because immune system genes would be subject to intense selection, having the wrong ones would be fatal and they'd be gone from the gene pool, it isn't exactly clear what factors shaped the present-day genetic patterns. So exactly how these things got passed along and when will remain a mystery for a bit longer until more research has been done on the three genomes. Okay, the next story is a bit of a bummer to me, ironically, because I don't take Prozac. I don't know about you, but one of those things that I fear most about aging is not the aches and pains and the physical traumas that accompany it, but the fear of losing who I am to the rather nasty embrace of Alzheimer's, My family does have a history, although dementia is usually late to arrive at the table. My ancient relations did not show the signs of it until well into their 90s. Still, it is always the boogeyman hiding out there in the shadows of the future. Some new research published at the end of August in the Proceedings of the National Academy suggests that maybe I'd be better off if I was more depressed and not less. Dr. Michael Weiner and his colleagues at the Veterans Affairs Medical Center campus of the University of California, San Francisco, have found that antidepressants may reduce the ominous brain plaques associated with Alzheimer's disease in mice and humans. In the study, mice genetically were engineered to overproduce amyloid beta. That's the protein that Alzheimer brain plaques are mostly made from. The mice were given one of three selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, a class of antidepressants that boost circulating levels of the chemical messenger serotonin in the brain, of which Prozac is one of them. After a single dose of the antidepressants, amyloid levels dropped in the fluid that surrounds mouse brain cells. A full day after receiving the drug, the mice's amyloid levels fell by nearly a quarter. The long-term chronic administration of the drug had a larger effect. Engineered mice that took the antidepressant citalopram for four months had about half the amyloid plaques in their brains as mice that hadn't had the drug. This reduction seems to happen through a protein called ERK, which serves as the middleman between brain cells, serotonin-sensing protein, and amyloid production. Figuring out the details of this process may open up the door for developing new ways to prevent amyloid buildup, say the authors. To see if a similar effect might be happening in people, the scientists scanned the brains of 186 cognitively normal elderly people and looked for signs of amyloid plaques. The team used a compound called PIB that binds to big clumps of amyloid in the brain and glows on a PET scan. Of these participants, 52 reported that they had taken an antidepressant in the last five years. These people, researchers found, had about half the amyloid load in their brains as the people who hadn't taken an antidepressant. What's more, the length of time the participants took the drugs correlated with the density of amyloid plaques in the brain. The longer the antidepressant dose, the less plaque. Weiner says, quote, "...we think depression pushes you toward dementia," But antidepressant treatment pushes you toward protection. Unquote. He adds, quote, Finding similar results in mice and humans lends the study credibility. When you have animal data and human data coming together, then you start to get really excited. Unquote. He warns, however, not to get too excited until serious clinical studies have been performed. He says that his study uncovered an association, not a clear cut cause and effect. Weiner notes, quote, We cannot say with certainty that the reason why people who took the antidepressants have lower cortical amyloid is due to the fact that they took antidepressants we only know there's an association there the authors also state that they don't know if just reducing the amount of amyloid will help ameliorate alzheimer's it may be that by reducing the plaques 20 to 50 percent nothing clinical will actually change so it seems that we may have to wait a bit longer to see whether this is a serious breakthrough or just a coincidence. The real question is this, and the paper does not shed any light on it. Does this result mean that long-term antidepressant-treated patients will have less of a risk of dementia? And that's exactly where a big study needs to be done. Okay, the final story of the night is another one which you might call, quote, let's shed light on Dr. Campanella's anxieties, unquote, Yes, it's another story related to dementia. Now, some people might suggest that I already border on the demented, but I will ignore them for the moment. As my wife will tell you, based on my snoring and erratic nighttime breathing, I probably have sleep apnea. I have never officially had this diagnosed, but it is not really a problem, or it hasn't been a problem. It goes away as long as I don't sleep on my back. Now, this new article is telling me that not only am I at risk to stop breathing if I sleep on my back, I may go mad as well. Well, I'm sure many of my colleagues and my family would heartily support that it is probably already too late for me in that department, but let's just talk about the story here. The story was published in early August in the Journal of the American Medical Association. It found simply that breathing irregularities that rob the brain of oxygen during sleep may imperil a person's ability to think straight. A study of women 65 and older finds that those with seriously disordered breathing have an increased risk of developing mild cognitive impairment or dementia in subsequent years. Dr. Christine Yaffe of the University of California, San Francisco and her colleagues tested 298 women, average age 82 from 2002 to 2004 for sleep problems. They monitored each individual overnight and noted any stoppages of airflow in their breathing as well as arousals from sleep. About one-third of the patients had disordered breathing. None of these women was cognitively impaired at the time of the sleep test. After the test, patients were given their scores and told if they showed signs of severe sleep problems. When researchers repeated standard cognition tests on the women roughly five years later, 45% of those who had disordered breathing had developed dementia or milder cognitive impairments, compared with 31% of those with no breathing irregularities. In particular, women who had 15 or more breathing stoppages per hour and who spent more than 7% of sleep time not breathing during the earlier part of the study were nearly twice as likely as those without breathing problems to develop dementia or other cognitive impairments. Such problems can include forgetfulness, confusion, and reasoning problems. In one of the most insightful statements ever to come out of medical thought, one of the authors stated, quote, "Clearly, hypoxia isn't good for the brain." Unquote. Yes, that was sarcasm. Please, Dr. Obvious. Please tell me when lack of oxygen has ever been found to be good for the brain. The only treatment for severe sleep apnea presently is wearing an oxygen mask that continually keeps your breathing passages open. Since no medications are known to prevent mild cognitive impairment from progressing to dementia or Alzheimer's, the authors have suggested, quote, treating at-risk patients with breathing apparatus for sleep-disordered breathing as a prevention strategy." They say that it may be worth testing. Oh, and one other thing to note about this study, it is very rare that a physiological study like this is done on just women. So this is one of the first times that the woman's data is the baseline data. The study has yet to be conducted on men and the results known. Not that I have a great deal of hope that it will be otherwise than what they found with the women, But it's nice to see that several hundred years of medical research protocols are changing and not depending so heavily on the human male. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care, take your antidepressants, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella.
3: There you go. Thank you very much, sir. Next up is a short bit of fiction called The Speed of Dreams by Will Ludwigson. This was first played over at Escape Pod. Give you a little heads up about Will. Will was technically born, he says this is his bio, some 30 odd years ago in Delaware. But he moved to New York soon after his birth and he considers that to the Freudian womb of his unconscious sensibilities. He settled down, he says, in Jacksonville, Florida, where life is uncomplicated, distractions are few and expenses are low and friends are numerous. That sounds a lovely place to be. He earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in English from the University of Florida in 1994 and completed a Master's in the same discipline at the University of North Florida in 2005. He planned to get himself a PhD, but eventually discovered that he liked making things up more than finding them out. And he says a fiction seemed a more honest way to do that. He is a 2006 Clarion graduate. He says he's worked as a technical writer and training consultant for various businesses and government agencies. Never quite sure if that means he really just writes fantasy non-fiction by day and fantasy fiction by night. His work has appeared in Weird Tales, Cemetery Dance, Alfred Hitchcock's... Mystery magazine, Strange Horizons, Asimovs and, and he's been in the second anthology Interfictions. There you go. And actually this story is narrated by Will Self as well, an all round clever lad. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Speed of Dreams by Will Ludwigson. Hello, I'm Will Ludwigson and this is my story, The
5: Speed of Dreams. Page Sumner, 8th grade science fair paper draft. Introduction It happens all the time. You're sitting in class, listening the best you can while Mr. Waters goes on and on about atoms or sound waves or whatever, when suddenly you fall asleep. Your head lolls against your shoulder, and some drool oozes from the side of your mouth. Luckily, Missy Woo kicks you in the knee to wake you up before someone notices, like Mr. Waters, or worse, Austin. What's weird is that, in those few minutes of sleeping, you dream like hours of stuff. You're all hanging out, or playing basketball, or walking the mall, while everybody else is slowly raising their hands and taking notes. They all get 24 hours that day, but you get a little extra. But how much extra? Investigative question. How much time can you fit in a dream? Hypothesis. Time in a dream moves faster than time in real life, so you'll live more there. How much more is proportional to real-world time? Method. Unfortunately, Mr. Waters says there's no way to measure time in our dreams. Since the whole idea of my project is that time is subjective, he says nobody could compare or repeat my results in relation to the real world. That is where Patty comes in. Patty is our dog, a retired racing greyhound. Her name used to be Patriot back a few years ago when all the bald, sweaty men at the racetrack used to bet on how fast she could run. She had to retire because she was a bumper— so competitive that she'd knock the other dogs in the race against the walls. She never bit them or anything, just shoved them. Like they shouldn't even be in her race, you know? Like they weren't even there. Even though she supposedly retired, Patty still likes to run. She's faster than eight-year-old, too. When she sees squirrels or rabbits in the yard, she peels off after them in a big counterclockwise circle. I guess habits are hard to break. She caught a bunny once and swallowed it whole, her jaws clopping together as the poor thing slid down her throat. We saw the little eroded bones in her poop. Patty loves to run so much that she does it in her sleep. After I brush my teeth and crawl into bed, she jumps in too and flops down next to me, sometimes teetering over like a tree and sighing. Then, in the middle of the night, she'll dream about running and kick me awake with her twitching legs. She'll be breathing all heavy, snorting through her nose and sputtering her lips. She usually does it for a few seconds and then goes back to sleep. Now, it turns out that she used to race back down at the Orange Park Kennel Club on their quarter-mile oval. The greyhound rescue people gave us her records, and her specialty was the 5-16th-mile race, which she usually finished in about 32 seconds. I know, because I added them all together and averaged them. Lots of dogs run in their sleep, but only greyhounds like Patty probably do it for a fixed length of time, right? She spent her whole life running the same stupid race over and over again, chasing that stick as it swung around the track. If anything is stuck in her head enough to dream about night after night, It'd be that race. So there is my basis of comparison. Procedure. I will measure the proportion of dream time scrunch by doing the following 1. Let Patty sleep, staying awake to watch her. 2. When her legs start kicking, start the timer. 3. When her legs stop, stop the timer. 4. Write down the number of seconds. 5. Repeat a bunch of times. 6. Get the average time it takes her to run a 32 second race in her sleep. And 7 divide that average sleep race time into 32 to get a proportion. Assumptions Because Mom made me take the dummy version of science this year so I wouldn't get all stressed like last year, my assumptions are probably stupid. But then I'm only 13 and a girl with plenty of time to become a swan, as Mom likes to say. My assumptions, dumb as they probably are, 1. Patty is running a standard race that takes her the usual 32 seconds and not some magical fantasy race that she wins in, like, 10. 2. Patty's legs start twitching when the race starts and stop when it stops, and she isn't flying or teleporting for any part of it. Three, the amount of time scrunchable into a dream is always the same proportion. Patty doesn't dream some races faster than others. Four, dogs and humans have the same time scrunch proportion. And five, Mr. Waters won't be mad when I hand in this project instead of the model of the solar system he signed off on. Results. Experiment 1, February 4, 9.04 p.m. When Patty started to twitch, I was trying to get Lisa and Austin back together. I know, stupid, an instant messenger. I couldn't reach the stopwatch in time, so I didn't get any data. I did get them back together, even though Lisa is really only in love with herself, like everybody else is. Experiment 2, February 5, 328 AM. Patty started kicking like crazy, waking me up. Luckily, I was sleeping with a stopwatch loop around my wrist, and I clicked it right after she started. She huffed and snorted, peeling her lips back from her teeth. Then, after 6.21 seconds, her legs slowed and stopped. I wrote down the time on my algebra book cover and went back to sleep. Now that I'm awake, though, I wonder if I dreamed that she was dreaming, and the stopwatch was just measuring scrunch time in my dream. Drat. Experiment 3, February 6, 7.31pm. It was my turn to help with Nana, so I had Patty come in to help. Nana is my grandmother, and she sleeps even more these days than Patty does, and sometimes switches in her sleep the same way. When I was spooning Nana's oatmeal between her lips, Patty started kicking under the hospital bed, which made Nana's pills go flying all over. I put down the jar and timed her at 5.2 seconds. Then I timed how long it takes to put the jar down a number of times and got an average of 2 seconds, so that counts as 7.2. It took me 45 seconds to pick up all the pills, but that has nothing to do with anything. Experiment 4, February 9, 11.44 p.m. Patty kicked for 6.73 seconds. She also yelped, but not an angry yelp, more like a a kick-ass, you-want-a-piece-of-this kind of yelp. Nana must have heard her back in the guest bedroom because she kind of moaned at the same time. Maybe they were running together in their sleep. Experiment 5, February 11, 11.44 p.m. Patty kicked for 6.73 seconds, and it squicked me out a little that she did it at exactly the same time as before. Experiment 6, February 12, 12.14 p.m. Austin came over, and we sat on my old swing set waiting for Patty to fall asleep on the grass. When she finally did, he let me take his hand and use his fancy running watch to time her for 6.88 seconds, which means we were holding hands for almost 10 seconds. His smelled like soap. Experiment 7, February 13, 2.20 AM. Patty and I were under the blanket, reading that note from Austin again with a flashlight. Well, I was reading the note. She's a dog. I'd just gotten to the best part about him wanting secretly to go with me to the dance, but he couldn't break up with Lisa until after she'd finished the basketball season, when Patty started to dream. I clicked the stopwatch, and she stopped after 7.1 seconds. Then I read the part about my eyes again. Experiment 8, February 14, 5.39 p.m. Patty was laying on top of my dress for the dance when she started running again in her sleep, swooshing it underneath her legs. I couldn't stop her because Mom was standing there all blah 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 to me about wearing her makeup. Good thing there was a clock over her shoulder so I could see that Patty wiggled for seven seconds. Mom went on longer, but she stopped when Missy's mom came to drive me and Missy to the dance. Experiment 9, February 15, one fifty-one a.m. I'd fallen asleep in that stupid dress when Patty started dreaming. I grabbed the stupid timer and watched it for the time it took her to finish the stupid race 6.34 seconds which happens to be about the same amount of time that Austin even bothered to look at me at the dance while he was all over Lisa like they were going to be married or something. Experiment 10, February 15, 4.57 a.m. I was still up, mostly just petting Patty and crying, when she ran her second race of the night. I read somewhere that greyhounds could do eight or more races in a day, so that wasn't surprising. When she finished after 6.2 seconds, I asked her if she won, and she looked at me like, duh, I always win. That must be nice. Conclusions. I added up all the race times and got 60.39 seconds. Then I divided that by the number of dreams, nine, for an average of 6.71 seconds each. Significant digits, blah, 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 because I only know Patty's real-world race time to the ones digit, I've got to round that to seven. So Patty runs a 32-second race in her sleep in only seven seconds. When I divide 32 by that, I get the proportion. We get 4.5 seconds of dream time, for every second of real time. Application. Lately I've spent a lot of time talking to Nana. I sing to her, tell her what happened at school, read her the dumb jokes from Reader's Digest she used to like. She never wakes up. Sometimes she'll kick like Patty does. I asked Dad if she was ever a runner in the Olympics, and he looked at me like I was crazy and told me no. So I have no idea where she's running or for how long. She doesn't lick her teeth like Patty does, so I'm pretty sure she's not chasing anything she plans to eat. Sometimes I bring in flowers so she can pretend she's in a field. Even if she wasn't in the Olympics, my nana did a lot of other things. She was born Flora Soner on March 6, 1940, back in Pine Falls, Minnesota. She ran away from home and she was about my age, took a train to Hollywood to be a synchronized swimmer in the movies, and met my grandpa five years later on a trip to San Francisco. They got married a month later. She worked as a waitress, a bartender, a secretary, a census taker, a limousine driver, and even a cop. She went to Mississippi to ride with black people, marched against some war in Washington, and even brought casseroles to hippie kids in Haight-Ashbury. She wrote a number of poems and songs, a couple of them sung by Jefferson Airplane. I tried to sing them back to her to wake her up, but it didn't work. She showed me how to sew, how to flip an omelet, and how to throw a hatchet into a tree, even though it always took me more tries than her. I wonder if she does that stuff now in dreams, or if she's doing new and different things, like piloting a spaceship or being a tigress. Whatever she's doing, she doesn't have much time to tell me what to do better here, that's for sure. If I were a tigress, I'd be busy too. Mom and Dad say she won't live much longer, but they're talking about the real world. Thinking like that, none of us lives very long at all, right? But you get 4.5 times as much life sleeping as you do being awake. That's four times the chances to get things right, like the lives Mario gets if you don't make a jump. You can probably even do different things, like be a ballerina in one, the president in another, Laura Ingalls Wilder in the next, and a dolphin in the fourth, all while everybody else is just getting one stupid life. So no wonder Nana is stretching out her life like lots of old people do at the end. We think it's a coma, but really it's a dream, one where you're doing all sorts of cool stuff you want to, like winning every race, catching the rabbit, hanging out with Jefferson Airplane, and getting to dance with Austin. Maybe four times the number of tries, I can do all those cool things, too. Experiment 11, February 27, 11.09 p.m. 1. Take the rest of Nana's pills so I can catch up. 2. Write down when I start falling asleep. 3. Live four cooler lives hanging out with Nana. If we need money, we'll visit Patty's dreams and bet on her. 4. Wake up and write down all the big courageous things I
3: did. (coughs) There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Will's. Will, thank you so much. And we've got something else coming by Will as well. I kind of dig Will's styles and really pleased that he's let Starships over his stories. Next up, we have an interview with Tobias Bickel. Tobias has started a project over at that Kickstarter program with a book called The Apocalypse Ocean. And I just want to really ask, Toby, what it was all about.
0: Well, what we're doing is uh, putting together the fourth book in this series, the sequel to Crystal Rain, Ragamuffin, and Sly Mongoose, and we're doing it sort of as a direct backing project with, via Kickstarter. So, if you're interested in getting an ebook, you can back the project for twenty-five bucks. If you're interested in getting a hardcover, you can back the project to fifty bucks. And if you're interested in more exotic rewards, if you want to get like the chance to name a starship in the universe of the Xenowelth, you can go ahead and do that or a planetary body or get your name into the book. So a lot of fun things for people who are fans of the series and a, and a way of pre-funding the entire project. It's pretty unique. It's pretty fun. And people seem to be reacting pretty well. I mean, we're almost halfway to the funding goal.
3: Yes. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm on the page there now and it, everything looks to be going really good. What I mean, tell people as well who don't know, because this is really the first time I've come across, Kickstarter. What is Kickstarter?
0: Well, Kickstarter is a way to create sort of like venture capitalism for artists of all kinds and even inventors. And what it is, is a way that, uh, you know, somebody wants to create something interesting they can put up a kickstarter project page with some interview uh, some video talking about what it is they're doing and you can sort of back the project now there's a sort of a, a an amount that that person is trying to raise and if you hit that amount then the funds get released to the person doing the project if you don't reach that amount then all the funds are never taken out of your credit card so it's a great way to sort of you know try and figure out if there's enough demand for a product. You know, one of the most frequent questions I get when I do interviews and talk to people, and I was recently just in Barbados uh, uh, for a convention, and, you know, a lot of people ask me when, when I was going to write a sequel to those books. Now, I've got a new book coming out from Tor in February, but there's still a lot of fans of that that series that kind of you know, got stopped, and I just thought this would be a perfect test case, a perfect way to try out Kickstarter and see if there's enough fan demand and reader demand for the series to continue for me to do a direct sort of, you know, a direct Kickstarter project.
3: So i am a right in thinking then? If it doesn't make, like, say, your goal of $10,000, you'll not get any mm-hmm. of that?
0: That's correct. That's correct, right? If it, no pressure. If it's not going to happen... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's – it's to write a book takes me five months or more and, you know, there's – I, you know, make a living doing freelance and I make – uh, which is about 40 percent of my income and 60 percent of my income is doing fiction. And so in order for me to take five months off to do, you know, certain projects, I, I do need to make sure that I'm not, you know, hurting my family or, you know – Going to fail at doing it, so I, I know how much is needed, and I know how much is needed to have a print run of the hardcover books that everyone's interested in. Uh, I know how much I need in order to get artists. I have a very cool artist working with me, Pablo Defendini, who's going to help me with some layout and art, and and we've got this great custom art. If you go to the web, uh, page, you can just take a peek at it. And so, like to do everything right, you know, is is not free, and all of that just requires, you know, a certain, a certain, for me with a novel project, a certain approach, or I could just go ahead and spend, you know, two or three years writing this book on the side as I have time and coming out. But I mean, if people really want it sooner, then, you know, this is a way for it to happen.
3: Um, and has, also, I was gonna say, has, you know, you've, you've got 21 days according to the website there now, how long do you get? Can you set your, your timeline on this Kickstarter?
0: You know, you can set it anywhere from 60 days on down, and most of the successful projects seem to take about 30 days. It's a month. It's something everyone can hold in their head, so I went for 30 days. I just kind of ran with the herd there. I did a lot of research looking at other successful Kickstarter projects to try and figure out what levels were right. 25 seems to be one of the most popular uh, places to start for successful projects, and you know, I spend a lot of time trying to come up with interesting sort of reward levels for people and ways to make it fun. One of the things that we're doing that's kind of interesting is that I'm offering unlock rewards for everyone if we raise more than a certain amount. So if we raise ten thousand dollars, obviously I head off and I start work on the novel. We're gonna create these hardcovers, you print out enough copies, ship copies to people, and do some neat stuff. But if we raise twelve thousand five hundred, the artist is gonna go ahead And get commissioned to do a custom map of the entire Xenowelf, the the worlds that are all part of this series. And if we raise 15, then we're going to go ahead and do like custom interior art and have some, you know, inside illustrations. That'll be really cool. And if people really want me to start this immediately, as soon as humanly possible, if we raise enough, I, you know, I have the offer there to, for me to start work on this novel immediately at the end of the month when we raise the money.
3: <laughs> hey, it sounds great. What I was going to ask you there though is, you know how you're saying you're doing this one kind of yourself. Do you not run into trouble with, and I don't know if you have by any chance, we've got like agents and do you not run into trouble that way by maybe pushing them out to one side and doing this yourself?
0: Well, I mean, this is still early days yet, and we're still figuring out how different things work. I did mention to my agent, we talked about the fact that I was going to do a Kickstarter project for this, and he said he'd be very interested to see how it went, and that it would be a perfect sort of test lab. I'm not, you know, I'm continuing to write novels for, you know, my New York publisher, uh, Tor Macmillan. so I'm happy to continue doing that. It's just that this particular series has kind of died off in the bookstores. We have great... Great pre-order sales for the, for the last book. We had great sales via Amazon. In fact, those all rose. And overall, sales rose a tiny bit from book to book. But the problem was that bookstores uh, by the third book were pretty much almost not even carrying it in their stores. So the, the uphill battle we were facing was the fact that like we would have flat sales with the fourth book and declining bookstore sales but raised direct sales from people who really loved the series and were investing in it. So we decided to go with the next book in a new direction with Tor and we canceled the series. But that still meant to me that even though bookstore sales weren't doing too well, there was still this growing core fan base which suggested to me that if I were to do something like this Kickstarter project or a direct release of some kind or look for a publisher that might be willing to take a gamble, we could do it. But since Kickstarter is really... Interested me a lot. I think it's really more of a revolution than just say the ebook world. It's it's a way that allows you to kind of figure out how to get your project venture backed before you start it, which to me is really intriguing. It occurred to me that this would be a perfect way for uh, me to test it to see how it's doing and to be another sort of data point. Uh, we've had a couple of other people do some successful and amazing projects. We've had Tim Pratt did a really good job uh, uh, putting together some uh, testing and how to do direct sequels for uh, existing readers with some of his books in the Marla Mason series. Mer Lafferty did a really great Kickstarter project for one of her books. Uh, Actually, it was for four novellas that make up a a part of a series. So... it, I just wanted to get in there and, and test it out and check it out because I, I I always have my fingers in everything. I I work with you know uh, some of the bigger publishers in New York. I've worked with some smaller publishers for short story collections. I've some, done some direct releases to ebook, and now I'm trying out Kickstarter. And I just think as an author who's entrepreneurially inclined, it's always good to have your fingers in different pies just to make sure that you are diversified and you understand how these different methods work. So. When I realized that it was going to be such a, you know, uphill battle to find a new publisher for this series, because it's really hard to sell the fourth book in a series to a different publisher. People just aren't too excited about that. So, you know, looking at how much work that would have been, it's not impossible, but it would have been a handful. And just looking at the fact that I was very intrigued by Kickstarter, I just thought, you know why not try to see if there's enough demand for these books crystal rain ragamuffin slime mongoose for a fourth book and go ahead and use kickstarter and you know so far we're 50% of the way there almost uh, you know quite a few people have chipped in and said that they would really like to see a sequel so it's starting to look likely that you know we're going to we're going to get really close to the amount that i would need in order to write these
3: books and put them out nicely in a, in a good package so it's exciting it sounds like a really good experience. Is it an, a, an, a good experience for you then, doing this side of it? This, you know, like you see, you, you've you've got your books in the big in the big publishers and everything, but really, this mm-hmm. is hands on you, basically publishing it yourself and doing everything yourself. Are you enjoying this side of it, or you know, this kind of management before it kind of starts? Are you enjoying that?
0: I'm enjoying the education. If I had to do this for every book, I could see how it would get uh, very tiring very quick. <laughs> the the you know the the side of it that I'm dreading is when we actually go towards making these books, the hardcovers, the limited edition hardcovers, because I think that is going to be quite a handful. But I have a good person in my 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 corner who will be helping, you know, on that side of things, and hopefully that won't go too badly. You know, hopefully that won't be a, a you know crazy learning experience I mean,
3: that's, uh, that's a good um, point you've made there just because we we do our kind of volumes one two and three the, the kind of and i think you, you've been in there yeah is because we we actually get like the hardbacks from lulu and we order them up you know we, we do like uh-huh. say, a special set and the comeback from lulu fantastic you know you just as good as kind of anywhere else are you going down mm-hmm. that lulu route for i see your hardbacks or have you got an, another like say independent publisher which is going to you know, actually make these books for you?
0: I, you know, I don't want to tip my hand, but uh, there's some options out there that I'm exploring. You know, Lulu's certainly a, a one course, but I'm hoping to do some something different and come up with a really beautiful book. So, you know, my designer and I have some ideas. We've, we're, we'll we definitely be doing something interesting. So that, that side of it's going to be a lot of learning. And... It is, you know, the, the biggest part of it is that basically, and I think the most dangerous part of it is, is, is straight up ego, which is that you're basically about to possibly get rejected in public. You've set up <laughs> how much you think you're going to need. You've specced out the price of this project and you've put it up in public. You, you put up a video of yourself talking about being excited about this project. You've talked to a number of other people who are readers of yours that are excited about the project, and now you have to hope that actually there are enough people who are just as excited as this, this group that has been influencing you and talking to you because if you put it out there and you don't get the response that you're hoping for, you're doing this out in the open. It's one thing to sort of you know get rejected, send out proposals, send out a novel – And to get those rejections back, but at least that's sort of uh, part of – the process is kind of private; it takes place in your home office or your home. You're not sort of standing out there in the middle of the street while 200 people watch you open your rejection letter or <laughs> that's, possibly a That's a great, letter. That's Whereas a great in this room. place, I know that I know there are about three or four thousand people a day who come past my, my my blog. There are lots of people outside of that group now that, as a result of some of the interviews I've had, that are now watching this Kickstarter project. So there is this sort of like you know, wow, I really hope this goes through. This would be kind of, uh, you know, I can see how it would be really brutal for some people, more brutal than the other side of of publishing to basically see something like this collapse in public. And so I've actually given some thought to how I'm going to weather that if it doesn't work. You know, like, you know, are you sure you want to do this in public? I asked myself before I started it because... You know, I think I have a healthy enough ego that if it doesn't work, I'm just going to go ahead and list everything I learned from it and probably write a blog post called Everything I Learned About My Failed Kickstarter Project. Because that's me. Um uh, but you know, there is a little bit there's a little bit of me that has to admit that in the back of my head there will be a ouch, you know, that didn't quite go as I'd hoped. But, you know, we're like I said we're halfway there, so I'm still I'm still very optimistic that uh, we should be able to make it. So
3: Talking about that then, you know, with all these kind of people looking at this Kickstarter, how do you promote it? You know, say if you, someone comes along, you've put yours up on there. Does Kickstarter, have they got a, a big fan base anyways? Or is it really all down to you to, to get this now out and everywhere that in front of people's eyes? Sure. Well, I, Kickstarter
0: has, I'm, I'm looking at one of their, their posts about who uses Kickstarter about 75% of their users are first time backers and a quarter of them are repeat backers so what you have here is is a core group of kickstarter people who back way more than just one project and if you look at the backers on my kickstarter page you'll see some of them have you know has backed two or three other projects has backed one other project and a bunch of them are first timers. So what you get is a number of people who have participated in Kickstarter, who look at this, there's an interview recently where someone said that they view themselves as sort of a venture capitalist. They invest or put up, you know, money in Kickstarter projects that they would like to see happen, whether it's, you know, movies or Books or what have you. I know I've, I've, I've put in a little money for a movie that I was hoping to see happen once, an uh, independent film on Kickstarter that was really cool. I've put up money for a small publisher that was getting started called Two Publishing, which is now an uh, imprint of Lee and Lowe. That was really cool. And that's why I first became aware of Kickstarter was because I thought, wow, this is a really great idea. This is something I would really love to see happen. I'm going to chip in X amount of money and hope that it happens. And sure enough, enough money was raised that it did did end up happening. And so, you know, some people are repeat and some people are just first timers. A lot of my uh, readers who are very excited about this series, you know, got an email in their inbox because I have a, a, you know, like a listserv or they read my website and saw this and, you know, ran off and and donated for the first time. So it's just real interesting mix of of both kinds of people. And I have to get out there, of course, and kind of try and reach my own my own readers as much as I can. So it's just been, you know, I've said a few things on Twitter. I'm trying to not be that guy who's, you know, every three hours saying, hey, 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 look at this, please help. Um, Because I really want to leave this one up to to the readers to spread the word and decide if there's enough, you know, interest out there for them to go ahead and fund this. I really don't want it to be, you know, please, dare God, fund this, please, please, please. Because, you know, I'm... You know, I'm happy to do interviews. I'm happy to do podcasts. I'm happy to talk about what I'm doing, but it's sort of like, you know, I, I, I take a very zen sort of approach to it. Either it'll get funded or it won't. And either way, I have other book projects and other commitments that are on, on the ground right now that have to be done as well. So, you know, there's a, there's a portion of it. Hold up. time from January 1st to uh, the middle of next summer, where I think it works out really nicely for writing this book, and that's where I'm planning to. But if it doesn't work out, then I'm going to slot in another writing project and some other writing projects that'll that'll come in and make me money, and it'll all be good. But you know, the truth is, I love this series. I wrote three of the books. I invested a significant portion of the last six years living, breathing, and eating this series. And so writing the fourth book would be really awesome. But the truth is, you know, um, I don't want to be really annoying.
3: <laughs> I try to be. A, a, no, I a think. Relaxed. I think honestly too. Yeah. You, you've hit a great idea there. You know what I mean? And I hope it inspires other people, other writers, other projects to kind of have a dabble in it. And like you say, I think. It is, yes, you're, you're kind of opening up your soul and you're having three, you know, 3,000 people. It was a great description looking at your rejection slip. But that's just, you know, that's life. It's just part of the, you know what I mean? It's just part of the, the deal. I think it's it's a great I, one. I was at
0: a really fascinating lecture not too long ago by a guy named Mark Stevenson and Corey Doctorow were talking about futurology, futurism at, up at the uh, University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And, one of the things they they mentioned and i've heard this quote before and it's one of my favorites was it's like if you're not if you're not failing you're not doing enough you know and that was that that's a that's something that has always resonated with me which is that in order to get some successes you've got to be falling flat on your face And sometimes it requires falling flat on your face in public and that's okay. I'm, I'm actually, you know, it'll sting, don't get me wrong, but I'm, I'm very comfortable with the fact that in order to achieve what little success I've had in this world, I've really had to go out there and completely screw things up. And every time you do that, you know, the reason we don't do things a lot is that we fear that failure, but you know, that failure, you always having, you know, bitten, you know, bitten it, you always come out of that with some lessons and and you've learned more for the next time around. So, you know, if this Kickstarter project doesn't work, then it'll be something I make notes about for another Kickstarter project down the road. And, you know, if, if, you know, something doesn't work out when I, when I submit it to other publishers, I always kind of take notes. I recently just got a a rejection on a project I was really hoping to be able to do. And it was just one of those things where you're like, Oh, we came so close. It was really cool. I was very excited, but it didn't work out for this reason. So, you know, let's make a note about how to, how to work around that. So to me, it's just more of the same, you know, I need, I need to actually get out there and do more for a long time. I used to keep a, a list of how many rejections I got up on my website and I still talk about the fact that it took took me hundreds and hundreds of rejections to break into short story, to break into print, and you know I have 600 or so, you know, or uh, maybe not quite 600, but I was getting close to 600 rejections career wide, <laughs> you know. So this would just be another one. Just didn't know the one, the mix, isn't it? Yeah. One of 600.
3: Well, honestly, Toby, you've got a you've got a great attitude to it. Yeah, I was going to say, you've got a great attitude, you know, for it as well, so brilliant. And I first, you know, I kind of first stumbled on you when, and it was a fantastic short story, I loved it, Green Thumb over at Escape Pod played it, and that's where I kind of first kind of came into you there, so, you know what I mean, good luck to, to, with this project, it's just, you know, fingers crossed, I'm certainly going to pledge a little bit of money, I hope everybody else does, you know what I mean, just, it'd be nice just to see it work and to see, you know, where you take this book and how it, how it takes off.
0: Uh oh, thank you very much. Well, yeah, you know, go check out the project, guys. Uh, see if you like it. And if you're intrigued, the instructions are all there. And if not, you know, I always appreciate a signal boost. But, you know, if nothing else, go check out Kickstarter. There's some very cool projects on there. If nothing else, you should at least spend some time clicking around. There are some fantastic inventors. There are some musicians. There are artists, uh, picture book artists. There's so many different categories, and it's really cool. And there's some other sites that do this uh, as well. It's not just Kickstarter. There's a site called Indiegogo, I N D I E G O G O, that does uh, the same sort of thing. And there's another one called PeerBackers, which has also recently helped put together enough money to create a fund for. Uh, science fiction fans to uh, internationally go to major science fiction cons in the U S kind of like the, the down under fan fund and TAF, but, uh, Um, more global so there's a lot of fascinating stuff going on and you know it's a case of like you know sometimes when people are asking for your money you're kind of like ah quit asking for my money but in a lot of cases you just see something that's just like oh man this is so friggin' cool if this doesn't happen I'm going to kick myself (laughs) well I'm just just actually looking
3: on this site there and and that's just you you can sorry you can actually see there's an evening with Neil Gaiman and Amanda Palmer as well so you can you know that's even up there on a kickstarter project yeah I mean how,
0: how cool is that excellent yeah yeah, exactly. I mean, there's so much cool stuff going on, and a lot of artists and inventors just uh, playing around with how to use this this sort of pre funding as a way to sort of do stuff that doesn't really fit, you know, the normal categories of you know book submitted to you know publisher ahead of time or book submitted to publisher. There are a lot of interesting projects, such as continuing series that fans are are in love with, or coming up with weird in between projects, or just coming up with cool inventions that people are like hey look if enough people buy ahead of time one of these things then we can get enough money to go and just manufacture them so there's just i don't know it's just it's a a real haven for uh, some interesting creativity so do go check it out yeah
3: well to all be honest it's been lovely talking to you thank you so much and good luck with this little project of yours thanks for having me on the show man There you go. I've put a link on to Toby and I've put a link on to the actual Kickstarter program as well. The Apocalypse Ocean. So if you want to support him, please go over there and support that lad. Thank you very much. Toby, thank you so much. Next up is the main fiction and it's by Neil Asher, the Gunard. Neil Asher, born 1961. A couple of years, a couple of years older than me. <laughs> is an English science fiction writer. Asher didn't turn seriously writing, this is Wikipedia, until he was 25. He worked as a machinist and a machine programmer from 79 to 87. He published his first short story in 1989. And his first novel, Gridlinked, was published in 2001. This was the first of the series of novels made up of The Gridlinked, The Line of Polarity, Brassman and Polity Agent, and Line War. And he has, Neil has a new book out as well, The Departure. Came out in 2011, so please, it's just come out. I'll put a link on to that book, go over there and treat yourself to it. This story is narrated by our very own Mike Boris. I asked Mike to send over a a new little bio, just a a bit of an update, you know, we've played a few... kind of narrations by mike but it was always nice to get you know to speak to him anyway so so this is mike's bio updated by day mike is a mild-mannered cubicle dwelling drone for a fortune 500 company by most nights mike is making dinner for his lovely wife and four boys by other nights mike is satisfying his creative urges by narrating short stories for podcasts longer stories for audiobooks and really short bits for training presentations Along with the Starship Trooper, Mike has narrated stories for the Travelcast, Escape Pod, and Way of the Buffalo. He's also recorded several audio books and is always on the lookout for other fun projects. And like this bit, by fun he means pain. <laughs> you can check out some of his work at Mike Boris Audio. Again, link on there. Do do pop over. Drop him a line and prop up his fragile ego. That's his last line in his bio. Mike, give you a big hug. Thank you so much for taking the time out to do this as well. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Gunnard by Neil Asher. Either
6: side of the door to this church of the fish, two iron-scaled creations gaze down from posts of heatherwood. They are representational of gurnards only in that they are readily identifiable as fish. Church artisans, like the clergy, have never allowed anything so irrelevant as fact to get in the way of their calling. On the iron scaling of the door itself, Sirius Beck knocked with the butt of his gun, then holstered the weapon. Whilst waiting impatiently, he gazed out at hills like pregnant seals below the falling box of the moon. Beyond the hills, snow-clad mountains faded into green sky and could be mistaken for cloud. There flowed the changing waters. He knew this just as he knew so much else about the church— for his teachers had driven it into him with a leather strap. It was his conceit that he would have fled this place even without the feel of the strap across his back. At an early age he had learnt to read, and absorbed much from the church library that the other acolytes had missed. It was his conceit that he had left because he had not been stupid enough to believe, and he had not expected to come back. Returning his attention to the nearby hills, he noted a flock of sheep flowing across the land and dropped a hand to the butt of his gun, before turning at the sound of the view-hatch grating open. "'Yes,' asked the belligerent face beyond the grid of thick wires. Beck recalled that someone had ordered the grid fixed there, after a sheep had knocked on the door, then ripped off the face of the acolyte who had opened the hatch. This sort of thing often happened. "'I am summoned,' said Beck, not trying too hard to hide his irritation. "'Ha!' came the informed reply. When there was no further reaction, Beck felt the impetus build. It frightened him. If this fool did not let him in on request, he would have to attempt bribery, or scale the lichenous walls, or pick the lock. The only other option would have him throwing himself against the door and clawing at the iron. "'Will you let me in, or will you explain to the wife of Ovens why you turned away a baptizer?' This brought a frown to the bristly visage, and Beck then saw, by the broken teeth and scars— that this man had already run contrary to church law. "'You know what'll happen if you're lying.' Beck nodded. Of course he knew. He did not want them to seal him in a drowning jar, but he had been summoned. Choice did not come into it, for the voice of the gunner had spoken to him on a cellular level, and he did not have the knowledge to resist it. Bolts and latches clacked and rattled inside before the door was quickly drawn open. Scarface stood there in stiffened hide armor, "'a crossbow across his arm, cocked and loaded with a barbed quarrel. "'With a glance over his shoulder, Beck quickly stepped inside. "'The inside of the church was all dank stone, "'across which biolites crept in search of the bladders of blood "'that were hung to feed them. "'And as a consequence of all that nourishment, "'the glow of the gen-factored creatures was red. "'The algal life coating the floor in patterns as a frost on a window "'was scuffed by the passage of many feet.' but still regrowing in places, it all but concealed the mosaics. On the ceiling, these mosaics were clear behind translucent stone. They depicted strange hoofed animals with woolly pelts, the like of which Beck had never before seen, though their heads were similar to those of sheep. Other, just as unlikely herd beasts, crowded the ceiling along with birds and fishes, plants, insects. The doctrine of the church had it that these were creatures of earth, and is real, thought Beck. Come with me, said Scarface, and led Beck down corridors he remembered from what he considered the most gray and miserable time of his life. As an orphan, he had not been given any choices. As one of the Trindar Becks, he had fled before they broke his will. Scarface led him into an area to one side of the entrance hall. He wanted to go straight ahead and down, as he was impelled to do, but the pressure wasn't so bad now he was inside the church, and he could handle a detour or two. He immediately recognized the door he was brought before. Once he had stood outside it shivering with fear and anger. Scarface knocked and opened the door. We have one here who claims he is summoned, Scarface said. Serious Beck, said Morage, looking up from the paperwork on his desk. Beck stepped past Scarface into the office, and the door was closed behind him. He walked to the desk, pulled out a chair, and sat. I did not give you leave to sit. I don't really care. Morage glared at him. He has not changed so much, thought Beck. After ten years his beard was grayer and his red robes faded, but the man's eyes were still the malicious focus of his face. Morage enjoyed power, enjoyed meeting out punishments. I could have you beaten and hung from the walls. You would do that to a baptizer? Beck tried not to smile. He knew enough about church structure and doctrine to know that, as a summoned baptizer, he was the province of the wife of ovens only, not the inquisition of the church. Should Morage seek to exert authority over him, he risked his own drowning jar. Thinking on this, Beck's gaze strayed to the corner of the room, where a spherical glass jar, a meter in diameter, contained the remains of Morage's predecessor. The man was naked, his wrists tied to his ankles. His head lodged between his knees, his skin bluish and his eyes sunken away, the preservative he had been drowned in not being sufficient to prevent all decay. Baptizer or not, it wouldn't do to push Mirage too far. Beck stood. I think it best I see the wife, he said. Mirage sat back. What proof do we have that you are summoned? He's starting to play, thought Beck. I should have been more circumspect. "'You know the proof as well as I.' "'Yes, but perhaps before you are brought to the chamber "'I should hold you for a while. "'It would be easy for a potential assassin "'to claim to be summoned.' "'Beck felt a sudden surge of anger and fear. "'Petty, that was Mirage. "'Beck rested a hand on the butt of his holstered gun "'and leaned across the desk. "'A lot of years have passed, Mirage, "'but I haven't forgotten you,' he said. "'Mirage glanced at the gun.' He obviously had not seated until then, and just as obviously the doorman would be in for a beating for not relieving Beck of his weapon. Mirage tried to sneer as he waved his hand at Beck. "'Go to the wife,' he said. "'I've no time for this.' Beck went, the anger and fear slewing away as he was once again on course, and being replaced by faint amusement in that the gun made it even more likely he was an assassin. Even then he could feel the presence of the Gunnard in his emotions." In a moment he was on a main corridor leading into the center of the church, where the wife of ovens tended her fires. Already he could feel the increase in warmth and smell from flames of marsh gas. And as he walked, the impetus took hold of him, drove him. He was vaguely aware that he was accompanied as the corridor he followed dropped down into the earth by sections of stairway, each marked by decorous drowning jars. At the end of the corridor he entered the huge central chamber, hot from the mouths of the ovens set in the walls. At the center of this room, on a pedestal of heatherwood decorated with sheep skulls, rested a wide glass pot, big enough to bathe in, and containing water the color of bilge from an iron boat. Beck ran across the crumbling floor and thrust his hand into the pot. Something moved there. Spines entered his fingers, and fire traveled up his arm. He vaguely noted two of the clergy moving quickly forward to prevent him spilling the pot as he pulled away. "'He will have visions,' somebody said. "'Of that I have no doubt.' The chemistry is complex enough, said someone with an accent he did not know. He looked around as the fire hit his neck and branded the side of his face. The wife of Oven stood there in her robes and ceremonial apron. Next to her stood a creature with black skin, white hair and blue eyes, in the strangest clothing. As he fell, Beck thought that the visions had already begun. On earth, sheep eat grass, and gunnards are the most unassuming of fish. In Nuramar, the day before a baptizer's arrival at the church, a family was massacred by sheep, and in a hundred churches people prostrated themselves before pots of dirty water. Erlin considered these facts, recorded them, and made no comment. In a church of the fish, it was best to make no comments about anything, to remain the detached observer. When first shown to her room, she had thanked her escort and smiled, ignoring the threat of the empty drowning jar in the corner. She was here to observe and to study, not to judge. "'So anyone could be chosen to be a baptizer?' she asked. The wife of Ovens, in her voluminous robes draped with a thousand amulets and her thick-hide ceremonial apron, nodded sagely and smiled her satisfaction. Erlin thought she looked precisely like a female Buddha, hugely fat, bald, and smug. "'Yes, child, even you could be chosen.' "'Erlin turned away for a moment in an attempt to keep her expression serious. "'Here the wife was very old, seventy years Solston. "'Erlin, being a member of the human polity and a citizen of Earth, "'had access to technology of a civilization that now spanned one-tenth of the galaxy. "'She was two hundred and thirty years old and was determined to live forever, barring accidents. "'Yet it would seem,' she said, "'that no northerners or island people are chosen.' The wife showed a touch of annoyance. That is so. But they could be chosen at any time. Erlin nodded, her expression showing nothing but gratitude at having things so clearly explained to her. Of course, she could have pushed it. She could have mentioned that in the entire history of this church, no one had been chosen who had not spent some time living in this building, eating the food, drinking the water. The same rule applied to every church of the fish. Erlin irradiated her food and drink before ingesting it she had no wish to get religion. So please tell me again, what now happens with this Sirius Beck? Sirius Beck will carry out the task charged to him by our Lord. He will carry the holy fish to the mountains of the waters of change. There he will baptize the fish in each spring as in the birth. The fish, meanwhile, will be reborn here in the new year, two days before the drinking of the Eucharist. Does anyone travel with him to the waters of change? No, this is not allowed. What about the sheep? The sheep will not attack a baptizer. There, thought Erlin, another dead giveaway. I'll have to get a sample of that New Year's Eucharist. Loaded, sure to be. No coincidence, either, that the springs called the waters of change feed into every damned river on this continent." Erlin wondered how the clergy got past the fact that each of the hundred or so churches had its own fish and its own new year. Sirius Beck saw the gray shapes of gunnards in deep pools and in rivers and streams blunt nosed against the current. He felt their power, the power of God in them, and he hated it, hated that he could not resist it. He saw sheep upon the hill feeding on bloody human flesh, and the box moon opened and spilt writhing worms across the land. He saw his world, and every part of it he saw was loaded with deep significance. The tangled branches of the heather trees spelled out the glyphs of a secret language. A sugar dog defecating behind a rock was a sign from God. Its every pant a holistic representation of the turning of the world. There was glory, and there was terror. Beck, in some deeply buried and logical part of himself, thought it all too ridiculous. If this were holiness, he wanted none of it. If there was a God, then he should mind his own business. The resentment of that thought gave him pain, and the pain woke him. "'This is the most comfortable bed I have ever slept in,' thought Beck. The mattress was soft. He was between clean sheets, and heavy scented blankets were layered above him. He was warm and dry, and he did not want to move, until something prodded him to move, and he felt a stinging in his fingers.' "'This is how it will be,' he realized. "'For the rest of his life this prodding would move him as soon as he got comfortable. "'Like every baptizer before him, he would die an old man trying to get to that one last spring. "'It was one of the inconsistencies that had destroyed his faith, "'that the Gunnard was reborn even before it died. "'You are awake,' said the wife of Ovens. "'Beck opened his eyes and gazed at the bulky shape standing at the foot of his bed. She smiled at him beatifically. He wanted to strangle her, but even a baptizer would not get away with that. He glanced to one side of her at the slim, dark-skinned woman he had seen earlier. What was she? Some freak from the islands brought to entertain the wife? Her clothes, he noted, were very clean and looked expensive. In fact, he did not recognize the gray and orange material of her coverall. He sat up. "'Yes, I'm awake, and soon I have to be moving.' Of course, this is how it must be, said the wife. Yeah, who's this? The wife gestured with one pudgy, beringed hand. This, Baptizer, is Erlen Taser in Indomiel. What kind of name is that? It is the kind of name they give people from earth. Funny. I must prepare the way for you. Dress yourself, Baptizer, then come at once to the tank room. The gunner awaits. The wife swept out of the room, gesturing for the purported earther to go with her. To Beck it looked as if Erlin wanted to say or do something else, but she went with the wife. That was always the safest move. Beck got out of bed and washed himself with the water and soap provided, before inspecting the well-made traveling clothes that he had also been provided. It would not do for a baptizer to be seen in the clothes of a common tramp. "'Beck was glad to see that his belongings, other than his clothes, had not been discarded. "'He still retained his pack and his gun. "'Opening the weapon to check it over, he saw that all three shells were in place in their chambers. "'He would be safe from sheep yet. "'As he dressed, there came a sharp knock at the door, and the woman, Erlin quickly stepped into the room. "'She had some strange instrument in her hand. "'Holding a pair of sheep-hide trousers before his genitals, he glared at her. "'I'm a doctor.' she said quickly. I need a blood sample. Beck eyed the instrument. Then give one yourself, he said. Please, it is very important. Yeah, you're right, my blood is. She stepped toward him, and he quickly stepped back. I bet the wife of Ovens doesn't know you're here, he said, and it was a threat. Erlin frowned at him, then pocketed the instrument she had been holding. Beck peered with curiosity at the pocket she had put it in, at the cloth, the way it's sealed, at the rest of her coverall. It was like nothing he had ever seen before. So was she. Are you really from Earth? Yes. Turn around. She looked askance at him. He nodded down at the trousers he was holding. I am a doctor, you know. That gives you no rights to my body. Now turn around or get out. Erlin turned and Beck finished dressing himself. Now why should you want a blood sample, he asked. Erlin was indecisive. They say you were an acolyte. "'but that you ran away, that you are a heretic and unbeliever.' "'They say right,' said Beck, with some viciousness. "'How does it feel, then, to come back as a baptizer?' "'Feels like hell. "'How do you reconcile your—' "'There came a rapping at the door before it was suddenly opened. "'Mirage stepped into the room with a sneering grin on his face. "'Behind him came two priests, "'obviously selected for their size rather than their piety. "'The rife of ovens awaits you, Sirius Beck.' It would be better if you followed your calling willingly. It was a mild dig. Mirage's attention was on Erlin rather than Beck. Beck stooped and took up his pack. He caught Erlin by the arm. The wife awaits the both of us, as it happens. He led Erlin past Mirage and his two thugs. "'Wait!' said Mirage, angry but unsure. Beck turned and addressed the two thugs. "'I'm a baptizer. Do you seek to delay me?' When this elicited no response, he hurried Erlin down the corridor. Damn it, stop them. Stop them Mirage hissed, but the two thugs were too confused and scared to take any precipitate action. I never did like that one, said Erlin, once Mirage was out of sight. Something sneaky about him. Mirage is a thief and a sadist. He strips the acolytes of their personal effects when they join the church, and he has been responsible for the deaths of many. The wife allows this? He would have taken you for religious counselling. You would have been stripped of your belongings and part of your skin before the wife found out. She would have forgiven him his fervor. Why are you here, Earther? I can look after myself, said Erlin, avoiding his question. Then do so, he snapped, and he left her as he took the most direct route to the tank room. They sang hymns while Sirius took up the small carry pot containing the unwelcome companion for the rest of his life. The tempo of the singing changed as he walked to the door, and he knew that once the door was closed, the rest of the day would be spent in sermonizing, for most of the clergy, anyway. There was one there, crouching, coughing up blood in a corner, who would not make it through the day, let alone to the New Year's Eucharist. Not that the foul water of the new gunner would have saved him. Something had died inside him, too deeply embedded to be ejected as usual, and the smell of death was on his breath. As the outer iron-scale doors of the church closed behind him, Beck lengthened his stride. It wasn't so bad, really. The pot was not too heavy, and wherever he went, people would give him food and lodging for free. Some would resent it, and others would make him welcome. But one would dare refuse. He gazed at the hills and at the mountains beyond, and strode into his new life. Hanging at his left side, under his left arm, the gunnerd swirled in its opaque water, reminding him that it was not his life. There were no more choices. The church was out of sight, and he was following a narrow path through a forest of heather trees, sprung up and through ground covered with black fungus, when a familiar voice called to him. "'May I join you for a little way, Sirius Beck?' Erlin came toward him through the trees, her boots sinking into the blanket fungus. She had come prepared, carrying a large pack and wearing a rain cape. There also appeared to be some kind of weapon holstered at her hip. She was regarding the pot hanging at his side, not even trying to hide her fascination. "'You realize that if the Inquisition find out you're with me, you'll end up in a drowning jar?' he asked. "'Oh, yes, I realize that. But I don't know why.' Beck continued walking, and Erlin fell in at his side. "'Neither do I,' said Beck. "'But then the Church has many rules that make no sense. "'Yet here you are, a baptizer, carrying a holy gunner to the waters of change.' If I had a choice, this pot would be smashed on the ground, and I would be going my own way. And even as he said it, he felt a stab of pain in his guts. It was dangerous even to think like that. There was a long silence between them, which Erlin eventually broke. You wanted to know why I wanted a blood sample, she said. Yes, I did. I have an interest in parasites, and I have come here to study them. Beck looked at her. The only parasites he knew anything about were sheep ticks, Erlin went on. There is a parasite here with a very strange life cycle. Its eggs hatch out in the mountain springs. I don't see the relevance. Well, parasites have all sorts of strange strategies for survival. Breeding. Sometimes they use more than one host, though I don't think this one does. There's one on earth that actually gets into an ant, makes the ant climb to the top of a blade of grass, and there cling on until a passing sheep eats it. The sheep is its next host, you see. On earth sheep eat ants? No, grass. Beck snorted his disbelief. If you're not going to tell me why you want a blood sample, just say so. I don't need this bullshit. I had enough of it in the church. No, really, I'm not lying. Just then there came a coughing snort from the shade of the heather trees. This was followed by a low moan and a rasping panting. Erlin pulled her weapon from its holster and looked around carefully. Beck glanced with idle curiosity at the little flashing red lights on the gun. After a moment he said, "'No need to worry yet. That's only a sugar dog. Save your worrying for when we get beyond the trees. It's flockland there.' To himself he muttered, "Grass indeed!' The sugar dog came out of the trees far to their right, paralleling their course. Erland stared at it in fascination, took a device from one of her pockets and pointed it at the creature. "'What are you doing? Recording images of it?' Beck studied the glinting little device she held, It was just the kind of thing Morage would like to steal. How it must burn him that she had escaped him. Why? he asked her. I've never seen one before. It looks like a cross between a bloodhound and a bullfrog. The words were familiar to Beck, but not in that combination. A bull he knew as a word for untruth, just as he knew of the little black frogs that lived in the southern swamps. That hound was another word for dog, and that blood was red in his veins and green in the translucent flesh of sugar dogs. "'So much was different about Earth. "'Perhaps if he had not been so wrapped up in his own concerns, "'he would have been fascinated by this. "'Perhaps she hadn't been lying about the sheep.' "'The sugar-dog huffed and whuffed through the leaves near them "'as they followed the trail, and then moved away to the west. "'In the distance, on the faces of the hills, "'flocks of sheep could be seen hunting. "'But there were no danger to sugar-dogs. "'Sugar-dogs were as poisonous as the plants they ate.' "'Do you know why they are called sugar dogs?' Erlin asked. "'Because they like sweets,' said Beck. "'Sugar kills them, though.' "'Yes, it also kills anyone caught feeding it to them.' Erlin waited for an explanation. He told her, "'They are protected by church and civil law. Anyone caught feeding any form of sugar to a sugar dog is executed by posting.' "'Posting?' "'Chained to a Flockland post.' "'Sorry, I I don't understand.' You will soon. He pointed ahead to a distant object jutting up out of the leaves. They walked in silence until they reached it. Here was a steel post cemented into the ground, from which hung a chain and a steel collar. All around it the leaves were trampled and scattered with chewed human bones. At the base of the post lay half a human skull that had been scraped empty. Erling quickly grasped what it meant to be posted. The sheep don't attack baptizers, so the church tells us. I don't believe everything the church says. With that, Beck drew his gun and checked it, as he had done a number of times since leaving the church. He also made sure the shells in his belt were easily accessible, despite the gunnered pot hanging at his side. Isn't that a bit awkward? asked Aaron, indicating the pot. The discomfort would be greater if I did not carry it, said Beck. Let's keep moving. He gestured with his gun and then kept it in his hand as they continued walking. The sun was a blue-green ellipse on the horizon, with the box moon in silhouette just beside it, when they saw their first sheep close to. A flock of twenty of them had trapped a ground skate and were levering up its wings with their claws and biting off chunks of fishy flesh. Sheep are nothing like this on earth, said Erlin, then regretted speaking when two sheep turned their curled-horned heads towards her and exposed yellow fangs. Quiet, keep walking, Beck whispered. THE SHEEP RETURNED TO THEIR EASY MEAL AND DID NOT PURSUE. THEIR HEADS ARE LIKE THE HEADS OF EARTH SHEEP, AND THEY HAVE HOOVES ON THEIR FEET. BUT ON EARTH, SHEEP ARE QUADRUPED. THEY DON'T HAVE CLAWS, Erin SHIVERED. THEY'RE LIKE SOMETHING OUT OF A CHRISTIAN FABLE, SATAN OR Satyrs. YOU'VE NEVER SEEN OUR SHEEP BEFORE? NO. SURELY, WHEN YOU CAME TO THE CHURCH. I WAS DROPPED OFF THERE BY AIR TRANSPORT DIRECTLY FROM THE PORT. "'Beck was vaguely aware that somewhere there was a spaceport, "'and he had often seen the transports flying overhead "'and the occasional flash of a star drive starting up beyond the moon. "'It had been his intention to find out about these things. "'Then the impulse had taken away all his choices. "'It made him sad, and it made him angry. "'I am only just become a man,' he thought, "'and my life is not to be used to my purpose. "'He considered suicide and awoke pain in his guts.' Tell me about parasites, he said. Will you listen? I will there, he said, pointing at a low stone sheep sanctuary, a building that, in another place, might have been used for protecting sheep from predators, but not here. Within the sanctuary, coke was provided for a fire, but there was no kindling to set it burning. Erlin started the fire with something that flared red and left burning bars of after-images in Beck's eyes. He placed the ganard pot near the fire and removed the bung. A dead fish smell filled the sanctuary, but movement in the pot showed that the gunnard was not dead. Thankfully, the smell of burning coke soon displaced that smell. Beck and Erlen sat then before the fire and ate from their respective provisions. You know, any fish from earth would have died in such a container. Why? Earthfish require oxygenated water. Your gunnards require no oxygen whatsoever. Oxygen is in fact deleterious to them which is why they seek out still water at the end of their journey. Journey? I was going to tell you about parasites. Do so, then. I'm not entirely sure of some aspects. I don't know why there is only one baptizer for each church. I can only presume messages are passed by pheromones or some such. This is about me, said Beck. Yes. He nodded, and Aaron continued. I'll describe to you a life cycle. You know what I mean when I say that. I'm not a complete idiot. Very well. As I said, the eggs hatch out in the mountain springs. After that, males and females travel downstream, in water and on land, to the richer feeding grounds in the lowlands, where the churches are. After it has reached first maturity, the female finds a pond, usually recently vacated by another female, and there start laying unfertilized eggs, out of which hatch the neuter parasites. These infect the water supply and end up being ingested by most life-forms that drink from the pond. These neuters grow inside their hosts and can, to a certain extent, control them. The neuters are in turn controlled by the females, though I have yet to work out the mechanism of that. Second maturity for the female impels it to return to the hatching grounds to lay more eggs there. It is carried by a neuter-controlled host to do this. I believe that at one time the only hosts were sugar dogs. "'though I'm relying on someone else's research for that information. "'I'm a sugar dog,' said Beck. "'He wanted to explain to Erlin that it felt too dangerous "'to say outright that he understood. "'She nodded and continued her narrative. "'Sugar dogs vomit food into the ponds. "'The clergy bring consecrated offerings to the tank room. "'All are infected.' "'Did that relieve them all of responsibility?' Beck wondered, "'but he said nothing. "'All this while the males have been feeding in the same areas.' The males have a higher resistivity to oxygen and feed mainly on land, on the various blanket funguses. When they reach maturity, they only have one kind, they head for the hatching grounds as well. Males and females from the same hatching do not return at the same time, which prevents interbreeding. Upon arriving at the hatching grounds, the females get their neuter carriers to place them in the waters. In those waters they lay eggs, usually attaching them to the bottom, to rocks in the sand. The males, by the time they are mature, are usually averse to water and too big to get all the way to the hatching grounds. They release sperm packets which travel alone to the mountain springs to burst in the water in which the eggs have been laid. Water worms, said Beck. No one I know ever had a reasonable explanation for that. In some places they call them suicide worms. It never made any sense to me. Well, they have the sense now. They have one purpose in their brief lives, and that is it. What are the males? We saw one today. Beck nodded. Of course ground skate. He felt slightly sick, so there was something inside him, jamming its spines into his guts. He realized some other things as well. The Eucharist that's when we get infected. Quite likely. Erin slipped into her sleeping bag and rested her head back against her pack. I imagine that right about now the wife of Ovens is having the ponds around the church netted in search of the reborn Gunnard. Of course, it won't be found until that one, she pointed at the pot, is out of the area. Adolescent Gunnards don't encroach on a mature Gunnard's territory. Perhaps in the past they were killed, or perhaps it is because the hosts are all used up. I don't know. Beck rolled himself in his blanket. He had the answer. The eighth moon netting of the ponds and the killing of the Gunnard hosts. "'That, then, was just the killing of the immature Gunnards.' "'He told Erlin about this. "'Yes, that makes sense,' she replied. "'Once established in its territory, "'the new Gunnard sends out the neuter-controlled hosts "'to kill off the competition, "'and keeps killing off the competition. "'I take it this netting and killing is continuous.' "'Every eighth moon,' Beck confirmed. "'Then he asked, "'What about the neuters left behind from the old Gunnard?' "'They die. Their purpose served.' Most of their hosts survive it, and survive to become hosts to the next holy gunnered. Beck thought about the priest coughing up blood in the church, and it took him a long time to get to sleep. He lay there listening to the sheep sharpening their claws on the stone walls, and tried to come to terms with harsh truths. There were no windows for morning light, but it did filter through cracks in the walls. Beck was beginning to feel discomfort as the impetus to move on grew in strength, when the door crashed open and figures crowded into the single room. "'For a moment he thought the sheep had learned to operate the locks "'and in panic groped for his gun. "'A heavy boot came down on his wrist "'and the butt of a heatherwood staff pressed against the center of his chest "'to hold him down. "'Do not struggle, Baptizer. I do not wish to strike you.' "'Beck recognized the two thugs from the church. "'One of them had Erlin pinned in her sleeping bag, "'the barrel of a gun, much like Beck's own, pressed against her forehead. "'After them momentarily silhouetted in the doorway came Mirage.' grinning unpleasantly. Mirage was a master of unpleasant grins. Oh, baptizer, you have a traveling companion. Even the wife will not berate me for my actions now. The baptizer must seek loneliness and purity in prayer, he said. Sugar dog crap, said Beck. The thug holding him pinned was uncomfortable with such blasphemous profanity. Mirage turned his attention to the thug who was holding Erlin. Let her up. Erlin kicked out of her sleeping bag and stood up carefully, her gaze locked on the barrel of the gun. "'Now, Earther,' said Mirage, "'I want you to undo your belt and drop your weapon to the floor.' This Erlin did, and Mirage grinned his unpleasant grin again. "'Now I want you to empty your pockets of all those wonderful gadgets.' Erlin began to do this also, dropping device after device on her pack. "'This is not about religion. This is robbery,' said Beck. "'Be silent, Sirius Beck, I will deal with you presently,' said Mirage, without turning. "'You would delay me?' asked Beck, expecting some result of his query, perhaps some wince of pain from their captors. Mirage turned and grinned nastily at him. "'I suppose she has told you all about the parasites?' Mirage's grin got nastier when he saw Beck's surprise. "'Do you think such knowledge would be lost to us? The wives know, as do all members of the Inquisition. It is best that we are the only ones to know.' You see, we keep ourselves pure, and we never truly take part in the Eucharist. You are free of neuter parasites, said Erlin. Mirage glanced at her. Yes, as are my friends here, he gestured at the two thugs, which means there are things we can do that so many others in the church cannot do. Erlin shot a warning look at Beck, but he did not need it. He knew that Mirage intended to kill both of them. He noted that the thugs were uncomfortable with what was just beginning to occur to them. Well, they might be. There probably had not been a baptizer in their lifetimes, and now they might be told to kill one. "'Strip that garment from her,' said Mirage, instructing the one who held Erlin at gunpoint. "'I don't want to have missed anything before she goes to the post.' Lying where he was, Beck had a view of the door and realized that no one else was looking in that direction. He swore at his captor to keep his attention. The thug became even more uncomfortable. The other thug was reaching for Erlin when Mirage screamed, The sheep had come in quickly and sunk its yellow teeth into Mirage's upper arm. Beck knocked the staff from his chest, caught the foot of his captor, and shoved him off balance. There was a flash of red between Erlen and the other. A hand severed and smoking at the wrist, thudded on the floor, still clutching a gun. Beck came up onto his feet, holding his own gun as he was grabbed. He sunk the barrel deep into the fat belly and pulled the trigger once. With a muffled boom and a horrible grunting sound, his attacker went up off his feet before thumping face down on the floor. "'Beck turned, saw the sheep fleeing from the sound of the weapon, "'saw Mirage on his knees, cradling an arm "'from which all the flesh had been stripped between shoulder and elbow. "'He was screaming. "'Beck pulled the trigger again, and Mirage flipped backwards out the door, "'most of his head left on one of the doorposts. "'One shot left, white shapes beyond the door "'bawing and snarling over Mirage's corpse. "'Time. "'Beck turned. Erlin was back up against the wall, her face pale.' The one left was trying to take his gun from his severed right hand with his left, while the stump of his right wrist squirted blood. He looked up, began to yell. The bullet went in his chest and out his back, folding out one shoulder blade like an escape hatch. The impact threw him at Erlin's feet, where he made bubbling sounds and died. Time. Beck cracked open his gun, pulled hot shell cases from their chambers, the skin of his fingertips sizzling. Put in three fresh rounds. He did not allow himself to think of anything else until he had done this. Then he stepped towards the door, shooting the first sheep as it came in, trapping the head of the second in the door as it tried to follow, shooting it through the eye and managing to get the door closed against the rest of the flock, locking the door. "'Serious. Serious.' The thumping and battering against the door was short-lived. Beck rested there with his forehead against the wood, trying to get his breathing under control. "'Shit, that hadn't been close.' "'When sheep went into a feeding frenzy, "'God help anyone who got in the way. "'Serious. "'What the hell does she want now, "'looking after herself? Ha! "'Beck turned and regarded Erlin. "'She stood in the middle of the room, "'distaste writ on her features. "'She pointed down by the fire. "'It hit him at once, "'the wrenching tearing in his gut. "'The pot was spilled, "'and the gunnerd lay on the stone, "'bulbous, stalked eyes blinking, "'mouth gaping occasionally, "'spines fanned out around its head.' Before he knew what he was doing, Sirius scooped it up and put it in its pot, oblivious to the spines piercing his fingers. He then emptied his water canteen in it. It wasn't enough. He took up the pot and headed for the door. They'll kill you if you go out there. I'm sorry about this, said Erlin. What is she talking about? As he reached the door, something hit him like a falling wall, and a bright and painful light took him away. Having filled the pot with water, Beck corked it. As he did this, he felt himself coming back to normality, gaining some control over his actions. He put the pot aside and knelt there with his hands resting upon the fronts of his thighs. He felt tired and his head ached. "'I'm back now. I'm in control,' he said. "'Then you can carry your own pack,' she said, and his pack thumped down next to him. He'd woken still under the same powerful impetus. He'd picked up the pot, opened the door, and taken the gunnard to the nearest source of water— He shivered in the thought of what would have happened had he gone out of the door the first time, when the sheep were in feeding frenzy. He'd noted, but had not been concerned about the blood, the few fragments of bone, clothing, and one chewed sandal, which was all that remained of mirage. He turned to face Erlin, who was sitting wearily on the near-petrified stump of a tree that had fallen when this area had been forest, and when the sheep had walked on four hooves. "'You can have your blood sample,' he said. "'I already took it,' she said. What did you learn? Not much, I merely confirmed. Can you free me? Possibly. Are you sure you want to be free? Yes, said Beck vehemently. Let's eat, said Erlin. Then we can move on. Beck agreed. They unpacked their supplies and ate their food. When it came to drink, Erlin filled a small container with water, in which it boiled in moments. You drink boiled water from now on, she said. Why? Why? I don't know how long the neuter parasites insist for. I don't understand. You could be rid of one only to be already carrying its successor inside you. I see. After eating, drinking, and resting for a while, they moved on. They reached the next sanctuary in darkness, watched by a night glow of sheep eyes. Did you leave the door to the other sanctuary open? Yes. Erin understood him perfectly. There would be nothing to incriminate by the time anyone else came to that place. She spoke with Beck for a while about parasites and ways to get rid of them. Then she watched him while he slept. It was her turn to find it difficult to sleep. What was she? Ten times older than him, yet she had never experienced such violence. She had frozen back there, and it shamed her. Shamed her so much she was now prepared to interfere, prepared to do something about the parasite he carried. She owed him at least that. "'Why are the sheep like they are here?' asked Beck, when the mountains were in sight. "'I don't have all the answers. Don't make that mistake. "'Perhaps your guess would be better than mine, though.' Erlin smiled before replying. "'Livestock was brought to worlds like this, worlds with indigenous life, "'in what was called genetically plastic form. "'That means they are able to adapt to environments very quickly. "'From what I have seen, grass did not take here, "'and most of the other plants are highly toxic. "'The sheep adapted.' They became carnivores rather than herbivores. As to the details... I see. What did you hit me with? Erlin slapped her hand against the weapon she carried on her belt. Beck looked at it and rubbed the back of his head. I didn't physically hit you. This weapon has a stun setting. Yes, Beck had read something about that, but he was so used to weapons that created huge holes in his enemies that it was a difficult concept to grasp. He chewed that one over as they set foot on one of the mountain trails, and as stone and snow loomed above them. When they came to a defile jammed with ground skate and crawling with waterworms, he remembered her life-cycle lecture and watched for a while until he saw one of the skate extrude a worm and that sperm-carrying secondary life-form wriggle away. With a bit of rock scrambling, they rounded the defile. On the other side, where some of the ground skate had got through and were flopping up the trail, Erin squatted by a waterworm and inspected it. The worm was as long as an arm and twice as thick. It was green, translucent, and segmented. It inched along like a maggot. I find these fascinating, said Erlin. There's plenty of genetic justification for them, but I've never come across anything like them before. Careful, said Beck. Erlin shook her head in wonderment and prodded at the worm with the instrument she was holding. After a flaccid clapping sound, Erlin yelled and leapt back, with a sheet of creamy green sludge over the front of her coverall. Beck might have laughed then, but something more urgent was calling him up the mountain. He walked on ahead, leaving her swearing and scraping the sludge from her body with a piece of slate. The mountain was high, but Beck had the energy of that impetus and strode up the trail with the pot clutched close to his side. As he got higher, he heard the sound of waterfalls to one side, and a damp mist gusted all around him, cooling his face. Soon he came to an area where thick bromeliads housed chirruping frogs. "'and ferny plants crawled across damp stone "'in search of soil-filled crevices. "'The spring gushed up in a wide, pellucid pool "'where flat stones lurked like giant crabs. "'Beck knelt in the wet, reddish shingle "'on a crescent of shore, only just large enough for him. "'He uncorked the pot. "'He was here. At last he was here. "'He tipped the pot, and the gunner slid into the water "'without a splash. "'The jolt of pleasure felled him "'and had him writhing in the shingle, "'stones in his mouth and in his boots, "'one arm in the water.' He shit himself, and he didn't care. The experience was too intense. Religious. Sirius. He wondered how many times she had said his name before he heard it. I hear you. What do you want, Sirius? Get this fucking thing out of me. I can do that now, I think. Good, said Beck, and he slid into the waters to wash himself. They sat on slabs warmed by the sun and watched worms inching to the pool and dropping in. As soon as they hit the waters, they burst and turned it cloudy. Beck could see their remains being jerked about in the water as the gunnard fed, taking on protein for its next session of egg-laying. "'Here, this is you,' said Erlin. They watched then as a sugar-dog came to the shore, knelt as if to drink, then spewed a gunnard in its water from one of its mouth-pouches. As the dog fell and began to jerk about, Beck turned away. This could kill you, you know. Beck studied the box-like affair with its glinting ruby lights, strange chrome things she had pressed against his flesh, and a screen across which marched an army of black ants. The pain in his guts had grown and grown and was now almost unbearable. Almost. Now, she said, and held out the strange chrome gun thing. He nodded. She pressed it against his arm and it spat fire into his biceps. For a moment the pain went away. She watched him. Then the pain came back so hard he screamed and set the sugar dog moaning. Later he puked blood, then something hard and chitinous. She shot something else into his arm and told him he was strong, that he would win. He kicked the pot then and it rolled off the ledge and smashed down below. I will win, he said, and he knew it to be true. So many people do. The sugar dog howled.
3: There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Mr. Neil Asher's. Don't forget, your new book out. Go over there. Get yourself it. It's on the front of the website link if you're interested in that. Big thank you to Mike. Big thank you to everybody. Dan Tosia for... Fantastic. Oh, Dan, thank you so much. So that is Starship Suva's 2005... 2005. Oh yeah, imagine if it was. 205 show. Hope you enjoyed it. Do stick around. More coming in the near future. Until next week, just like to say, night from me. Will our heroes survive
6: this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed?
5: Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment?
6: Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of... Sushi Sofa, a ventilation
1: procedure